So going into our message, we've been going through uh, the book of Mark. And uh, last week, I was talking about how I'm doing sort of a different style of preaching that I have. It's called exegetical. And the word comes from the Greek And it literally means to draw out. And I have used this style before, but I tend to lean more towards a topical style. I tend to to preach more on what is worship, what is faith, what is prayer. And in those kinds of topics, you you jump around in scriptures. You still think about the context. You still think about, like, what is the person trying to say with this verse? But you're picking multiple verses across multiple books to get a big picture, you know, what is God's entire perspective through the Bible on this topic? But I really felt led to go for a little while through the book of Mark, through this, this method called ex, exegesis. And I'm mainly explaining this again because I had at least one or two people online say, what does he mean by exegetical preaching? So I'm re-explaining it. <laughs> but uh, all we're literally going to be doing is we're going to be reading through the book of Mark. And uh, so if you pay attention online, uh, I'll put a post out usually around Tuesday or Wednesday and say, Coming up on Sunday, this is the next chunk that we're going to be reading. So if you want to uh, read it with us at home, come a little bit more prepared. If you don't, that's fine. I think I do a pretty good job of summarizing the general points of what's going on. But I really felt led to kind of go through. And the big reason for it, the big reason this is so helpful, is because there's some things that the authors are trying to convey to us. There's some things that Mark is trying to convey to us that you can only really understand by repeated study through everything that he said and the order that he says it in and the emphasis that he gives. Because each one of the gospel writers, when they tell a story, they give it a little bit of a different detail. Not that the stories are different, but that they're highlighting one thing versus another gospel writer is highlighting something else. And what can we learn about what Mark's trying to communicate to us through just going through his book and reading it and trying to see his point? So last week I talked about the idea that Jesus or uh, Mark led off his gospel with lots of healings. And some of the other gospels, John focuses on teaching about Jesus's origins, and Matthew starts off with a genealogy, and Matthew has a heavy focus on his teaching. But Mark just jumps right into it, st- jumps right off with the, with the miracles and the healings. And Jesus's teaching almost takes a back seat in the first chapter, that it mentions that he teaches, but the big emphasis is on his healings. But specifically on how his healings demonstrate his authority. And so last week we talked about how Mark is trying to start this gospel off by saying, you know, Jesus isn't a vending machine. He's not something we come to him and say, do this for me, and then we gauge our success in faith based on whether or not he answers us. That Jesus has authority. He comes to bring a kingdom, and he's a king. And this week, Mark's going to highlight how Uh, Jesus is using his authority to try and clear out some of the foundational errors that people at the time had made. And I want to kind of lead us through that a little bit. But before we get into that, um, every week we have our kids ministry section. And uh, so Catherine has done an amazing job of filming these at home. And I was originally leading them. A little bit of a funny backstory. I was originally leading them. And uh, my my wife goes to me, and she's a very uh, subtle human being. So she, you're laughing. (laughs) Uh, She's a very subtle human being. And so she, she goes to me and she goes, you know, John, it's great that you want to do these, but you're bad at them. Okay. Do you want to do them then? Yes. So this is where it came from that she does an amazing job talking to the kids. 
And uh, what we do is we'll have her talk to the kids on the same general topic of what we're talking about, and then I'll teach a little bit after that. So uh, if you want to play the first video and go from there. Hey guys, so today we are talking about listening to God and hearing his voice. I have brought with you me have to turn today the slider of the computer up on the my floor. trusty alarm clock. Now, to be honest, I haven't used this for in many years as anything more than just a clock, but it has this other really nifty feature called a radio. Now, did you know that going through the air right now in front of you and in front of me and all around us are these things called radio waves? It's true. Now, can you see the waves? No. Can you hear radio waves? Well, that depends. You can only hear radio waves if you tune into them. Now, do you listen to the radio? Most people these days get their music from the internet or their news from the internet. But once upon a time, radios were the main source that people had to listen to music or to hear the news or a talk show. And there were even these really cool radio shows where you would listen to the radio in order to hear a story just like watching TV, except you couldn't see it and you would have to picture in your mind the story that they were telling you, which is pretty cool. You had to imagine it. But in order to listen to the radio, you have to tune into it. So, I don't know if you can hear that. So let's see what's on this radio. This right here helps to tune. So if we turn it and listen, we get some music. See if there's anything else on the radio here. Another station. Oh, even another one. So there we go. That's about all we've got. I'll turn that off because the buzz is a little annoying. But you've got uh, the radio. And if we use this dial, like you heard, the radio change, I can choose what I listen to or what I don't listen to. God loves to talk to us and take time to talk to us, but we have to tune in to his voice in order to be able to hear him. It's our choice to listen to God or to listen to other voices. And just like here on this radio, I can choose what to listen to. It's the same with God. We can choose to listen to him or to not listen to him. Now, today's verse comes from John 10, 27, and it says this, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. Now, that's Jesus talking. And what it means is that we are God's sheep, and he is our shepherd, 
and we are to follow him and he leads us and he cares for us and sheep they know their shepherd's voice and they don't follow anyone who might come in and try to steal them but in order for them to know their shepherd they need to learn to hear his voice and we can do this through reading the bible to learn what kinds of things he would say and praying and talking to him to get to know what he's saying just for you or just for me so let's say the verse one more time it says john 10 27 my sheep listen to my voice i know them and they follow me now let's listen to pastor john and try to figure out what new things jesus was trying to teach in each story I love what a world we live in we have to explain. You know, we used to listen to stories without video. And I'm, I'm old enough, I remember, I think it was uh, CBC used to have story times. I lived in London, they used to have these story times, and I loved listening to those. But now it's all video and technology, and uh, my kids don't know how to operate a radio. They know how to operate a tablet and a digital camera. They don't know how to operate a radio. You give them a rotary phone and they're going to be confused. <laughs> technology moves really quick. So we actually, we had to search. That, that was Catherine's alarm clock. It was the only radio that we had. So uh, starting off here in, in Mark 2. So this is, this is coming right after uh, the healing of the paralytic, where they, four guys bring their friend, and they go to a house, and the house is so packed that they can't get in. So they literally dig a hole through the ceiling, and they, they drop their friend in for healing. And this is right after this. And uh, this, is, this story is from Mark 2, verses 13 to 17. And it's talking about uh, Jesus eating with sinners. And what Jesus did, one of the first things in, in Mark's gospel that he does in chapter 2, like I said, is he gets together and he starts hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. All other gospels identify he was hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes. And this is something I've always really identified with with Jesus because I try to make myself the kind of person that I'm not uncomfortable around anyone. It doesn't matter what kind of a lifestyle you have, that, I have, that there's opinions on whether lifestyles are good or not, but apart from that, that I try to make myself the kind of person that I can be friendly to absolutely every human being out there, that I can hang out with you, it doesn't matter. Uh, I was at a, a church once, and uh, this, this gentleman walked in, and if you picture like stereotypical, scary biker dude, it was this guy. He was huge. His arms were wider than my legs. He was covered in tattoos, even on his face. Uh, he had a t-shirt on that had a big flaming skull on it. And this guy came into, came into our church. And I don't know why I'm always just drained to these, to, the, to these different people. And so I walk over to this person, but I noticed something. I was looking at him, and I noticed tattoos on the face, flaming skull on his shirt. And he had a, a ball cap on that said, happy, 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 happy. And so I walked over, and I just, I just walked right up to him, no idea who he was. I said, hi, my, I'm just a random dude. I'm not on ushering or anything. I'm just friendly. So I walk over to this guy, and I go, hi, uh, there's a disconnect between, like, your hat and the rest of you. <laughs> What's going on here? And he just laughed at me. It turns out he was, he was a, a person who'd been saved out of a really dangerous lifestyle, and he felt called to, to working with other people like that. And I could have, like, backed up and said, whoa, this guy's kind of scary, but... I wanted to look past that, and I, and I got to know this person, and I heard amazing stories. 
And so Jesus, when he lands, his, his social circle of choice, so to speak, that he's calling his disciples, and they're the, really, the people he's really close to, but his social circle of choice, so to speak, are tax collectors and prostitutes. So when he, when he does this, the Pharisees ask him this, ask this question, and they're not even necessarily asking him. They just say, you know, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? They weren't obviously looking for an answer. They wanted to point out something that they thought was wrong. You know, Jesus is out there and he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. He's eating with prostitutes. Doesn't he know who he's hanging out with? They weren't looking for an explanation here. They were making an accusation against him. But Jesus wants to highlight a really solid truth. And Mark wants to highlight this too. And this is one of our first misunderstandings. And this is in Mark 2.17, and we're going to have it on the screen here. And it says this, Jesus said to them, the Pharisees, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And so he's trying to highlight a couple changed things about how the Jews saw God and his work in the world. Because remember what we talked about, that the Jews hadn't heard from God in hundreds of years. And when Jesus comes down, the Jews had this very internal-focused, self-focused sense of connection with God. That God's primary goal was to give them a system so that the people who knew him and had a relationship with him could continue being connected. And they thought that that was God's primary goal, was to maintain the system they had called the law so that the people who already knew him could continue knowing him. And so Jesus wants to identify two things. First is that he's come to change things. But second is that this isn't really a change. That Jesus calls himself a doctor. They were looking for a savior, but the savior they wanted was a person who was going to take them and put them back into the position that they wanted. They wanted independence. They wanted their nation to be away from Roman rule. They wanted all these things for themselves. And Jesus says, you know, the first thing you need to understand about me is I've come as a doctor, that I've come to heal the sick. I haven't come to call the people who already know me. I've come to call the people who are sick and broken and sinners. But this isn't a new thing. Like I said, you go all the way back to the book of Genesis and you're talking to Abraham and God is reaching out and he picks Abraham and he does these amazing things with them. But he makes a promise, and this is in Genesis 22, 18, and we have this one on the screen too. This is God's promise to Abraham. He says, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. So he's making making a strong connection here. He's saying that Jesus is saying, I have come to call sinners. I have come to heal the sick and the broken. I've come to draw people into a relationship with, uh, with me. But... God intended this from the very beginning, that if Israel was really doing its job, that they would be a blessing to all nations. And not just like a passive, well, the fact that they're talking to themselves and other people are hearing it in the background, not that kind of a blessing, but in the sense of like Israel would be God's hand through the world to administer healing and blessing. Jesus was doing the thing that God wanted Israel to have already been doing to be going through and healing and blessing. And a little bit of a sidebar, Jesus says here, you know, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call righteous, but sinners. I wonder, when did we think that this changed? We look at our perspective. This is, this is my heart uh, for the church global. 
that we look at our perspective, we look at all the effort we put in uh, to running services, to maintaining our building, everything like that. Is it primarily focused towards the lost? Or is it primarily focused towards the found? And that's my, my great heart when it comes to the church, is that if we want to be like Jesus, we should be like Jesus. That we should say, we are not here to call the righteous, we are here to call sinners to repentance. And so Mark is saying, you know, this is a big thing that you've missed. And understand, Jesus has authority to say these things, so we need to be listening to him. But then the second thing that happens in Mark 2, and this is verses 18 to 22, what happened was that Jesus and his, his disciples were hungry, and so they literally just walked through a field, and they were picking heads of grain. And I've never done that. Have any of you actually, like, picked the seeds out of a... I don't know what they taste like, nothing. I've never done that. It'd be awesome to do. I do know you can, you can microwave uh, wheat seeds and make popcorn, which is great. My kids love popcorn. But so they go through, and they're picking out these seeds from the heads of grain, and they're eating, but they're doing it on a Sabbath. And they made some people upset doing this. So some people come to Jesus, and there's a little bit more of a, like a friendly atmosphere here, rather with the Pharisees where they're just kind of in the background going, why is he eating with those people? They, they come to him and they say, um, oh, you know what? I skipped the story. I'm going to back up a little bit. So sorry, I skipped the story. I went ahead. Um, we're looking at Mark 2 verses 18 to 22. This, this story I'm talking about comes after my break. Um, so what was going on is that some people had approached Jesus and they'd asked, you know, John's disciples are fasting, the Pharisees are fasting. Why is it that your disciples don't fast? And fasting is a, is a good thing. It's got a positive connotation. Fasting means purposely and willingfully, willingly, willingfully, willingly giving up something in order to de- dedicate more time to God. And the Jews practice this regularly. So they came to Jesus and they said, you know, why is it your disciples don't fast? And I love the answer that Jesus gives them. And it's in Mark 2, verses 19, and it says this. uh, Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. And so Jesus is identifying another change here. And you can understand, like, the depth of it by reading through some other parts of the Bible. When Paul is teaching on fasting, or when Jesus is teaching on fasting, he says, you know, when you fast... Don't look somber, don't look upset, don't pour oil on your head. For the Jews, fasting was a somber, almost a sad experience. It was one of repentance. It was one of trying almost to like claw our way towards God. That when a Jew was fasting, that he had a problem he was trying to solve. And Jesus is redirecting even the very perspective of how we approach God that we don't have to try and beg and claw our way towards him. In fact, Jesus makes this this other connection, and he says, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? That this is a celebration. He says later that the bridegroom will be taken away. He's talking about himself, and he says, I'll be going to heaven, and at that point they can fast again. But while I'm here, this is a celebration. And he is drawing this direct parallel where even through the cross, even through what he came to do, that we have a new way of approaching God. That 
through the cross, we have forgiveness for our sins, but we can also drop this idea of constant remorse and sadness before God. The Bible says that godly repentance leaves no remorse. That's a really hard thing to say. Paul said about himself, you know what, I don't even judge myself. That doesn't make me innocent, but I don't even judge myself. And so Jesus is drawing this, this reality of how even that has changed. But he, he gives an illustration that I thought was great. He talks about sewing unshrunk cloth on an old garment. And again, that's something I've never done. But I know some people have done seamstress stuff. They've done sewing. So does, is this something that makes sense to you? About if you've like run a coat through the, the wash a whole bunch of times and the dry a whole bunch of, dryer a whole bunch of times, it shrinks. But if you get like a new piece of fabric, it will also shrink. And what'll happen is let's say you've got a hole. You put a piece of fabric, a new one over the hole, but the fabric's already shrunk itself. Then you run it through the dryer. The fabric will start to shrink, which will tear at the hole again. It'll make it worse. And this is in Mark 2, 21 to 22. He says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. No one pours new wine into old wine skins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wine skins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wine skins. And so Jesus is making an illustration here. Same with wine, that the way they prepare it is they put it into like this leather container, and then they'd let it ferment a bit, which would expand with gases and bubbling. So they put it in a new container so that the leather was fresh, and it would expand with it. And Jesus is trying to draw their attention to something, and Mark is trying to draw our attention back to this reality that even our approach needs to be seen through a new light. That Jesus brings new wine, but with that, we need to bring new wineskins. And we need to come in with this assumption that, you know, things have changed. Maybe my perspective isn't correct. That Jesus talks about how God is, is doing a new thing, but that we need new vessels and new environments to handle it. And I think if we ask ourselves these questions, you know, how is it that Jesus wants us to reply? How is it he wants us to feel? Because our default nature isn't always correct. Our default assumption of how Jesus works isn't always correct. So we need to be constantly asking Jesus, what is it you'd have me do? What is it you want me to do? How is it you want me to feel? Now we're going to have... Uh, the sound people pull up the second video. And just before you do that, um, we're next going to be talking about a reality of what can happen if we don't pay attention enough. And if we don't take this idea that, you know, Jesus is doing something new, even to us. Because we say, yeah, Jesus did something new 2,000 years ago. But the fact is, is he's always doing new things. He's always doing something next. And that this is still true for us today, that we can approach God and say, what's the next thing? So Elijah, if you want to pull up the second video. Hey kids, how about we play a game for this second part? Okay, now this game is not just for the kids. The adults can play as well. So I hope you are all going to participate, whether you are in the church building or whether you are watching from home. It's great fun to play these little games. So you can do it right where you are. 
we are going to play a game that most of you probably know called Simon Says. But as we are learning to listen to uh, God, let's play Jesus Says. So for those of you who don't know how to play the game, what happens is if I say Jesus Says, you need to do what I say. If I don't say Jesus Says, you don't do what I say. So I might say, Jesus says, touch your head, and then you will touch your head. But if I just say, touch your head, you don't touch your head. You keep your, you keep whatever you were doing before, you keep doing that. So let's try this game and let's see how many of you uh, can follow what Jesus says. Okay, so Jesus says, touch your head. Okay, Jesus says, wiggle your fingers. Jesus says, clap your hands. Jesus says, stomp your feet. Stick out your tongue. Did any of you stick out your tongue? If you stuck out your tongue, you lost. If you didn't stick out your tongue, you win. Great job, guys. I'm so glad you played along with me. Now, let me ask you a question. How would this game be different if you decided that when I gave the first command of put your hands on your head, if you decided that that was the only important command, what if you left your hands on your head when I gave every other command? I think the next command was wiggle your fingers. So what would have happened if you left your hands on your head when I said wiggle your fingers? You would have lost the game pretty quickly, wouldn't you? Well, what if everyone else started following the next command except for you and you started telling them not to follow that command? What if you said, guys, she, Jesus said to put your hands on your head. So why are you wiggling your fingers? Put your hands on your head. What if you had said that? Some people would probably look at you and say, but Jesus also said to wiggle your fingers, so we have to do that. Some of them um, might have just looked at you funny, but what if some of them actually listened to what you said and they also left their hands on their head? Well, those people would have lost the game too. So in the same way that when listening to me play Jesus Says, you need to follow all the commands and you need to listen to everything and not just the first command. We need to listen to Jesus every single day. He has new things to say every day. And if we only follow what we learned on the first day, we will never get to know, like we will never grow. We will never get to know what else Jesus has to say. We will never really truly know what Jesus has for us. There are so many great things God has for us. And while God stays the same forever, the methods of doing things changes. And this brings us back to our verse. So do you guys remember our verse? It was this, John 10, 27. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. If sheep only listen to the shepherd on day one and a wolf comes into the pasture on day two, 
in the place the shepherd had told the sheep to go on day one, then the sheep will be in danger. They need to listen to the shepherd every single day. We also need to listen to Jesus every single day. Let's continue listening to Pastor John and try to answer this question. What did the people say about Jesus that shows that they didn't understand what he said or did? So I talked about how I'm not great at the kids' ministry delivery, but actually when Catherine was trying to come up with an illustration for the second video, I came up with that one. So I was proud of myself. Uh, I thought it was a good illustration. And uh, it's, it's the truth. And I believe that something Mark's trying to communicate to us. Because he's got a couple stories where people are questioning Jesus, and they're kind of on the fence. They're like, why is this going on? Why, did he, why do you do this? Why are you eating with sinners? Why are you not fasting? So they're asking these questions, and Jesus is giving answers that they're not satisfied with because it doesn't line up with their previous understanding. And I think Mark's trying to illustrate something that can happen with all of us if we do that as well. Because in the next story, Mark 2, 23 to 27, this is the story I started telling before. I skipped ahead a little bit. This is where people start to get overtly hostile towards Jesus and his message. So in this story, like I said before, Jesus and his disciples are hungry, and so they're wandering through a field, and they're picking heads of grain, and they're eating the heads of grain. And the Pharisees say straight up, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? That's Mark 2, verse 24. Now, I want to be clear about something historically and culturally here, that the requirement that the Pharisees are talking about here is not a biblical requirement. It's a rabbinic requirement that the Jews had these two sets of rules that they followed. And the first was the Bible, but the second was the writings of teachers and influential people throughout their history. And what happened is that they took the Bible, but then they had all these teachers who said, you know what, this is good, but we're going to expand on it to make sure there's no possible way you even come close to breaking one of these. And so with the Sabbath, they laid a heavy set of rules down on the Jews. You were only allowed to walk so far. You couldn't prepare food. You couldn't even do anything to come close to preparing food. And they laid this really heavy set of requirements down on the Jews that if you do anything that even remotely resembles effort, that God is unhappy with you. When I lived in Toronto, there was an apartment building that was primarily Jewish. And it was tall. It was like 13 or 14 floors. And you don't want to walk down 13 or 14 floors on the Sabbath. So what, what the apartment building would do is that they, the elevator literally had this thing called the Sabbath mode on it. They'd set it up. It would go all the way to the top, all on its own, open on the top floor, go down a floor, open, go down a floor, open, go down. It would go down all the floors, then go all the way to the top, go down all the floors, so that the Jews didn't have to push a button and be seen as doing work. And they took this really, really far, the teachers did. And the Bible's requirements are way backwards. Now, Jesus had an opportunity here. He had an opportunity to say, yeah, but the stuff you're, these teachings aren't in the word of God. But he didn't take that bait. He wanted to show them something even stronger. He tells a story about how once when David, King David, the person that all the Jews looked up to, 
when he was a mercenary and he was fleeing for his life and he was starving and he came on these Levites. And the, the Levites had set up this thing called the bread of the presence. And I want to read something here. Uh, this is from Leviticus 24, verses 8 and 9. And it says, This bread is to be set out before the Lord regularly, Sabbath after Sabbath, on behalf of the Israelites, as a lasting covenant. It belongs to Aaron and his sons. It belongs to the priests who are to eat it in the sanctuary area because it is a most holy part of their perpetual share of the food offerings presented to the Lord. So Jesus had an opportunity here. He could have told them, yeah, but your requirement for not picking grain, that's your rule, that's not God's. But he pointed back to this story of how the Levites gave David and his men this bread of the presence so that they wouldn't starve. And I just read you the direct command from God in the Bible where he says, this is for Aaron, and this is a most holy thing. This was a big deal. God commanded not no one should eat this bread but Aaron and his sons. And so Jesus points back to this story, I believe, to highlight a different reality. And he kind of sums it up in Mark 2, verses 27. He says, Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so in this, this specific idea of the Sabbath, that all God wanted to see was people taking a break. I have met people that do not know how to do that. If I get in the wrong kind of circumstance, I will stop taking breaks. I will work myself silly. And God cared for people. And he said, I'm going to make one day a week where I want you to just relax. But the Jews had made it an extra burden. But Jesus points back to this greater reality. He says, you know what? Here's a command from God that David actually broke. And there's something that he wants us to understand when we talk about the holy things of God, when we talk about the most holy things of God, when we look at the structures or the systems or the things that he's given us and we say, this is something that's holy, we need to preserve it, that that's great, but we run the risk of missing something from God. With this bread of the presence that was meant just for Aaron and his sons, that Jesus was pointing out a reality. He was saying that the Jews would have rather David starved God would have rather shared and broken that command. And that's an important thing about God's character. And how much do we do that today? How much is our concept of following God tied to judgment if we think we aren't strictly following a pattern, even if it's a good one? I want to tell a quick story, and it was this gentleman named Eric Liddell, and he was a devout Christian, he was British, he was an Olympic runner. This was back in the 1920s. I don't know. I think I'm, I'm totally drawing on memory here, but I think he might have been the person the Chariots of Fire was about. Maybe? I don't know. But uh, he was a devout Christian, a British Olympic runner. His, his favorite event was a 100-meter dash, and I can relate to that. That was my favorite event in high school. And he competed in the 1924 Olympics in Paris, but... He refused to compete in the 100-meter dash, his best event, because they were hosting it on a Sunday. That he was saying, you know, that's the Sabbath. I will not compete on the Sabbath. That is my day of rest. So he, he gave up his best event in the Olympics 
to respect God and his rules. But then one day, I believe the story was that um, through the war, that he ended up in a, a concentration camp. He ended up, and uh, what was going, I might be butchering the last part of the story a little bit, but the, the tenets of the story is that uh, there were also some children in the camp, and the children would get together and they would play games. They would play hockey or soccer or something on a Sunday. And Eric Liddell, the man who gave up the 100-meter dash to prosper himself because it was on the Sabbath, sat down and decided, he's like, you know what, these kids really need this game right now, so I'm going to referee it. So he would go and he'd referee these games on the Sabbath because he recognized that as much as this was a rule, that God's greater heart was to love people. So do we reflect that concept in how we serve God? Even when it comes to the great things, something we mess up that God's genuinely called us to, genuinely said, this is an important thing you need to follow. How do we show love in those rules? Because that's what God wants. He doesn't want people to starve for the sake of a rule. He doesn't want people to not feel welcome or feel like they can connect with God because of a rule. He'd rather share his food than watch people starve. And so the next story uh, I want to talk about, there's two more stories. The, the first is in Mark 3, verses 1 to 6. And I want to illustrate, I was talking about how uh, we can pull ourselves off track by sticking religiously to a set of rules. Just like with Catherine's illustration of how if you're playing Simon Says and you only ever want to do the first thing, you will lose the game. That if we don't pay attention to Jesus every single day, we can miss the next thing he's doing. And so Mark's trying to highlight exactly how far the Jews fell away here. So in Mark 3, verses 1 to 6, it starts off and it says, you know, they were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus of doing something wrong. So they waited to see if he would heal someone on the Sabbath. How far away from God can we fall that we see someone get healed in the name of Jesus and we go, well, that was obviously wrong. That's a terrible thing. So they were literally waiting to see, is he going to perform a miracle on the Sabbath? Because then we know that he's false. That's horrible. But Jesus knows the stubbornness in their hearts. He knows what they're thinking. So he asks them a question. In Mark 3, verses 4 to 5, he says, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? What Jesus is saying, are you going to do the right thing or are you going to do the wrong thing? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. So Jesus knew these people were sitting back and waiting for him to do something wrong by healing. So he consciously did it to try and teach them something. Because again, what do miracles and healings in the gospel of Mark mean? Authority. I have the authority to do this. You need to listen to me. And so this culminates in Mark 3, verses 20 to 34. And the Jews at this point, they just say, he is possessed by Beelzebub. He is driving out demons and healing by the prince of demons. 
And this is, could we find ourselves getting to that point? But I think humility is an understanding we could. That if we're not constantly listening to God, if we're not constantly getting every day stuff from Jesus, we could get into that place where we look at a genuine move and power of God and say, that's the enemy. And that should scare us. So Jesus, he wants to correct their perspective a little bit. And he says, you know, if, if Satan's divided against Satan, he's going to fall. It doesn't make sense to say that. If I'm driving out demons, it doesn't make sense to say it's the enemy. But then he goes on to show a greater reality. He says in Mark 3, 27, he says, In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. So he's saying, this is what's actually going on. That right now, you are in the strong man's house. You are in the power of the enemy. And I am rescuing you from that. But then Jesus warns them here. In 3, verses 28 to 29, he says... Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. And this is a really tricky verse. Because we preach, and even Jesus says, all sins are going to be forgiven. But if you're blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, watch yourself. Because that's not a forgivable thing. And that's a really difficult thing to say. And there's theologians who say perhaps this sin is unforgivable because we'll never return to Jesus when we say that. Perhaps this sin is unforgivable because we're already lost at this point and we're not coming back. And I'll be the first person to say, I don't understand exactly how that power play works. But I will say this, that when somebody came to Jesus and said, this new thing that you're doing is the enemy, Jesus said, be very careful what you say. Because that is a big, big deal. And I think we need to also hold that in our hearts. Because if we can make ourselves into the kind of people that would oppose the move of the Spirit, Jesus is talking to us here. He's saying, be very careful in saying that's a dangerous thing. Be very careful in saying that's the enemy. I served in a church once where Looking back on it years later, that the, the pastor was not a good pastor. That it was a toxic relationship towards the church. And I say that now, after talking with many people. And it's not like it was a big issue for me and I had to work through it. But at the time, I was very careful to not say, you're messing this up. I was very careful to not say, this is a toxic thing that you're doing and you need to stop because it's wrong. Because I took this word seriously. What if it was God doing something new in the church? Who knows? So I took this very seriously, and it scares me, the idea that I might miss something that God is doing new because it doesn't line up with what God's done to me before. That scares me, that I might miss that. And you know, Jesus talks to us when he says that. He says that I do new things all the time. And if you're going to stand here and call something evil, you need to be very careful with what you say. That's a hard thing. (laughs) And the last story I want to highlight is in the same context where the Pharisees had went to Jesus and said, 
This man's driving out demons by the prince of demons. Even Jesus' own family came to him at that time, and they came to get him because it said that he, they said he was out of his mind. So the Pharisees, the keeper of the law, the keeper of the root to God, so to speak, were saying, you're the enemy. And Jesus' own family, the people who knew him, thought he was crazy. But in Mark 3, verses 34, you know, they come to him and they say, you know, your mothers and your brothers are here. And then it says in 34 and 35, it says, he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mothers and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. And this is the last reframe that I want to talk about this week. And I'll be quick on this one. And the reframe is this. The Jews, if you noticed a pattern through the whole thing, the Jews through the entire time were talking about religious structures. They were talking about, what about the Sabbath? What about this? What about that? All these rules. But Jesus says, you know what? The way this kingdom operates now is a family. And that's the different way we need to approach it. Because if we're talking about rules, if we're talking about breaking laws, there's a fear there. But what if someone in your family is struggling? Do you drive them out because they don't fit your definitions? No, you love that person. You come alongside them and you help them. And that's what Jesus calls us to. To see his kingdom not as a set of rules, not as a set of expectations that if we break one, he's going to judge us. He says, you know what? You are my brothers and sisters. And I'm here to help you. So I want us all to take that home with us. That Jesus is our family. That as much as he's authority, as much as he's king, he's also called us brother and sister.